missions. The Great Commission is given to all of us. We're to be engaged in it. We're not to just dismiss it and think that somebody else is handling that Great Commission. It is a commission and it is great. And we should be a part of it in many different ways. We should be giving and praying and going and desiring to support in any way, Lord. So we thank you. We thank you for our missionaries who have taken that step. We particularly thank you for our national missionaries who were born and raised, uh, no culture, no language, but more importantly, know and honor Jesus Christ and his word. And they love the people of their country. And so we pray for Hernan Sierra and his family as they do this church plant, as they continue to reach into areas that do not have sound churches. Lord, give them strength. We pray for Gabriella's health, Lord. We know that she has been struggling with cancer. Uh, she has gone through many surgeries. I pray you would just strengthen her, Lord. Give them what they need to fulfill that great commission into Gusagape. We thank you for them, Lord. We do thank you for our missionaries all over the world, ones we get to partner with, and ones that we don't even know about who are preaching the gospel. Lord, we thank you for them. Encourage them. Meet their needs. Give them favor in their communities, in their villages, in the societies that they live in, Lord. Well, Father, I thank you for each and everyone that's here. We thank you for some who have returned, who have been hurt or sick, Lord. So good to see them here today. But we pray for others who cannot, Lord. May you bless them and strengthen them to finish well, Lord. We thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's been interesting. I have been, you know, I've been sat, sat down in verse 58 for quite some time. It's a great passage to really teach on ecclesiology or the role of the church and how we all are part of that. This is just not a uh, leadership-driven church. It's, it's everybody's. We're all members of one body. And so we've been spending some time uh, learning our role in that. And uh, But it's an interesting. I don't know how many people come up to me and said, Pastor, that verse... 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, was the first verse I memorized. Or they were, they were led to memorize that, that verse at their baptism. Or, or somebody discipled them, and that was the verse that really pushed them into wanting to serve the Lord. It's such a beautiful verse, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. What an amazing verse. You'll notice in verses 1 and 2, there's a real connection here. He's kind of bookend this. I, certainly he's been talking about all the issues that the church struggled in Corinth. But in this particular chapter, he bookends this kind of idea. Notice in chapter 15, verse 1 and 2 here, how as Paul starts out this instruction on the resurrection, particularly the resurrection of Christ, and then the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of believers, he says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, I mean, this is just great terminology here, by which you are saved. That's what the gospel does. Remember this message? We worked through this. You received it, you stand in it, you're saved by it. What a tremendous truth. This is why it's still, um, we're still amazed at grace, aren't we? We're still motivated when we sing those truths and we hear God's word. This is what God has done. He's reminding them of these things. But then he says, if you hold fast to the word, which I preached to you. So there's one thing of saying, oh yeah, I stand, I, I was saved, I do all those things. And yet you abandoned the faith or you don't live like you're saved. And so he challenges us as if, if you have hold fast to this, this is really in your heart. Is this just some kind of outward uh, spiritual human commitment you made? Or has this plunged to the depth of your heart? That's what he's after. Because he knows they're wrestling with principles of the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers. And, and they're never going to get a hold of that if they don't get a hold of the gospel. And so he's after it. But notice how he finishes. Unless you believed in vain. See, Paul uses the word vain so often in his text. He is extremely concerned that believers had some kind of spiritual experience, but not are in the faith, at least ones who claim to be believers. He's, he's very concerned that the work that he's done for the Lord has hit its target. 
Now, he's not after earthly crowns and all of that, but he wants to know that the gospel he preached did not just fall on an outward audience. He wanted to fall on the inward audience. He wants it in their hearts. And so he's greatly concerned. And so he uses this term in the bookend of this chapter here. Unless you believed in vain, and then verse 58, that your toil is not in vain. This is his goal. And it's just pure and marvelous inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, how Paul addresses this. And it's a theme that he has. It's, it's a, a stellar reminder here at the beginning and the end. Is our life in vain or is it for the glory of God? It has to be one of the two. You're not kind of saved. You're not kind of a worshiper. You either are or you aren't. That's the way the Bible paints it. That doesn't mean we don't go through struggles, but Paul is concerned here. He's got people in the church who are denying the resurrection of Christ, thus they're denying the resurrection of believers, which would really, in his mind, make his labor vain. I didn't teach you that. I taught you the glorious victory in Jesus Christ. He's beat sin, Satan, and death for you. And then you're just going to be vaporized? See, he wants them to realize that their faith is more than that. He's concerned. And notice in verse 17, he says, if Christ is not raised, your faith is worthless. Very similar term to the vein there. You are still in your sins. Is your faith in vain? That's what he's after here. I think what he does so marvelously is he proves this truth through just the strong evidence of Bible teaching, of truth teaching as he works his way down as we did through this text. And he concludes in, in, in ultimately saying, God gave you faith and he'll strengthen you and he'll enable you and he'll make you immovable. He'll make you steadfast and he'll cause you to labor for his glory. So I think in verse 1 and 2, they're tied directly to verse 58. And it begins this last great verse of encouragement and challenge to live out our faith. There's so, there's so many wonderful reasons just to be encouraged by this. Encouraged by the truth that Christ beat death. I, I think you find confidence in the way you live this life when you believe that Christ beat death. I think you start to live with purpose in your life when you realize he beat death, he beat sin for you. It does not hold you captive anymore. The wages of sin is no longer death for you because Christ took them. I think that strengthens you to live. I don't know what else to tell you to make you strengthen to live. You know, be good, go to church, you know, stamp your passport that you were here. No, no, it's a gospel. And I trust for most of you that you're here because you're still enamored with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why he lands so hard. Be steadfast. Quit getting moved around. You've been born again in Christ. He'll make you stable. He'll make you to abound in his work. When you look at the previous verses it's, it's no wonder we read these at memorial services often. Look at verse 50 and follow. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trump, for the trump will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this imperishable must put on imperishable. Perishable must put on imperishable, and his mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying, death, where is your victory? Death, you've been swallowed up. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's the sting of death is the power of, of sin, is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I, I think what he's doing is trying to help us understand the, the reality of Christ in this moment. If that's true, if he beats sin, Satan, and death, you can stand firm, you can be immovable. 
Have you placed yourself under the authority of the word of God? Are you under his authority? Are you under the authority of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you watched him triumph over your sin? See, this is, you want to know how to be un, un, immovable and steadfast and always about in the Lord? Is that's always fresh to you. It's always fresh to you that he triumphed over death. He triumphed over my sin. You're amazed that he is a conqueror and that we are conquerors with him. You're amazed that he's greater than the one who's in the world. We find comfort there. I, I think one of the things I just wrote in my notes here, just a bullet point, I said victorious living. This is victorious living. It's living with a triumph of a song like this. It's almost in, you can almost put this to music. Maybe it was in the early church. You, you live humbly with this triumph song that taunts death in a sense. I think Christians who are unafraid of death, I think that's a powerful movement. What are you going to do with a bunch of people who you can't kill eternally? Oh, Jesus said, they may take your body, but they can't get your soul. I mean, what would happen when we all live that way? Such victorious living comes from those things. See, death could not hold our Savior, and it is not able to hold you either in Jesus Christ. And when he calls you home, whether it's by death or by rapture, every true believer desires, I think you would want this, and I would want this as well, every true believer desires for our Lord to say, well done, my good and faithful servant, as we enter in. And that's because we love his finished work. It motivates us. And this is the battle, isn't it? Isn't this the battle, the, the motivation of the gospel to teach me to die to myself daily and live for Christ? That's where that battle is raging, isn't it? It rages a little bit. And, and we see it, and we feel it. We feel that selfishness come up out of us, that, that desire to have our way versus God's way. We battle that, don't we? And yet he tells us, I, I'll give you strength over that. I've accomplished all this for you. And so it's no wonder Paul concludes all this with verse 58. On this wonderful note of exhortation, this finished work of Christ, giving us confidence to continue abundantly working in the things of the Lord. Christian, fear not. Do not be discouraged. Christ is one. Put your hope in him. He will strengthen you. Paul says this in so many different ways. I just grabbed three verses, just came to my mind and just jotted them in my notes. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who what? I can do some things? I mean, what's, what are you up against? What's going on in your life? What's financial, relational? What, what battle do you have going on that God, through Christ, cannot solve? He cannot strengthen you through it. This is where he works. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 was another verse that popped to mind. May now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and has given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace comfort and strengthen your heart in every good work and word. Ooh. He strengthens us for deed and word. When I need to open my mouth and speak for my Savior, when I need to shut my mouth and do what's right that honors my Savior, he strengthens us to do it. See, this is how you abound in the work of the Lord. It's through his strength. One more verse, you know this, Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I just can't, I mean, my mind just goes to, that's our creator. He spoke everything we have into existence. That's power. That's might. Well, let me look at these three points. I just want to touch on the first one as a review from last week because this is the only one we got through last week as we started looking at God's design for fruitful leadership that abounds in the work of the Lord. We took time there. We looked at 1 Timothy chapter 3. We looked at Acts chapter 20, 1 Peter chapter 5. We looked at these, and we realized and were reminded that God calls men outside of uh, the entire church, brings them from the middle of the church to either serve him uh, vocationally or in a laity form uh, to give their lives to him to manage and care for and lead and shepherd 
his children. In fact, elders are really referred to as under-shepherds. You can go all the way down to the word of galley rowers. We're in the bottom pulling on the oars and the Lord is calling out the strokes. And he calls men to do that. It is a, it is a calling in people's life and it's a calling to the work of the ministry. Not just a position, but it's a call to the work of the ministry. Who's called to do that? Now, I get several comments and most are good um, after church. <laughs> um, and I love it when people are thinking biblically. And they're, they're, they have a question or a comment, and they, they think through biblically. And one of the ones that came and said, Pastor, I think I understand, but can you explain the difference between laity and vocational? I think many of you maybe know, but let me re-explain it. Vocational is those of us that had a call, and we stepped out uh, and by faith and and spent a lot of time getting an education so that we could study the way we do, and, and we went to seminaries and so forth, and that's not always the case, but vocationally, we do this as our job. The church pays us to shepherd and gives us the money we need so that we don't have to go somewhere else so we can concentrate strictly on the word and to caring for the flock. So that's a vocational pastor. But then you have lay pastors, and I think this is where I've been after this last couple of weeks, these are men who are called. They have a clear calling in their life. They know it. and Maybe some are fighting it. Um, but they know God is pushing them and calling them towards the ministry. He wants them to serve in their lay position. They step out in faith. They maybe own businesses or, or employees or employers or something. But they step out in faith and say, God, I will serve you with my gifts. And they are needed and I said last week, this was where we really got detoured from the original plan of eldership. And we are, we are making some of those corrections, but we're begging God for lay men to be raised up. That God would raise up men who are both called and qualified and equipped, ready to go. Ready to serve the Lord. Ready to help lead the flock of God. I love lay elders. I've had many through the years. I've had men dirt poor, just cowboys that work for day wages as lay, as lay elders who were tremendous in the word. They spent time in the word. They were, they were trustworthy men. I've had men who have owned businesses. I've had chief of police. I, I've had all kinds of lay elders through the years, all of whom I have the highest respect for. They're men who not only had great experiences, but they knew theology. They knew who God was. They knew the Bible, and they were able to defend that and able to lead the church and help it from heresy and guide it, but yet bring their experience of things they've learned to that elder board to help us shepherd and care for the direction of the flock. And we're missing those men here. And I'm praying that God will raise up men that just can't get away from that calling. They can't get away from it. They'll, they know that God's calling them to serve in this way. And I pray that maybe that's you men. But this led me to do some thinking and praying on, on this in many ways. As much as we've been praying that God would lay up, raise up lay elders and deacons, mostly God calls men to unique opportunities to serve him in unique places. Not all men are called to be elders and deacons. They are a smaller group within the church. But all men, all people, men, women and young people are called to the mission field. They're called to go where God has sent them. And if you think about just our church alone, men and women and young people, they are given this in charge for this incredible privilege of carrying the gospel to their job. I think that's an amazing thing. I think you carry this life-changing message of the gospel that often maybe us vocational pastors could never get to those people. They're not going to come in those doors, certainly. I remember old cowboy said, I go in that building, it's going to fall on me. But then the guy riding saddle to saddle with them shares Christ with them. See, we all have a role some, yes, God leads to leadership within the church, but we're all sent somewhere. Through the years, I've taught this and preached this. This is one of the aspects of DTP that is just excellent. It takes and helps us realize that we are all missionaries. We're all sent to a particular people till God changes that. I've had men through the years say, Pastor, I hate it my job till you taught on that. And I started to finally realize that you sent me there. I'm the one that works in that company or for that person, and I'm the one carrying the gospel. 
And they were reinvigorated spiritually to share the gospel and their ministries at work and where they were at and live a life that is consistent with the biblical truths. And there's a desperate need for Christians to live out and speak out the gospel today. There's fear, right? There's fear. There's pushback, right? There's, we can feel it coming, the political change that's, that's been coming in this country. We, we fear that. And yet, what are we fearing when we know that God has sent his son who beat death? And he'll never forsake you. He'll never leave you. He'll never abandon you. And yet we have ministries We have ministries to display lives that have been radically changed by the power of Christ and his word. This is what we're called to. You know, it's Christ's great commission, but he gave it to us. He's the one who calls us and tells us, look, I want you to be partners with me in this business that you're working at. We're going there to preach the gospel to all nations. And that includes Ormond and Volusia County and wherever else you're sent. That's where we're sent. And, and so you partner with them, and you partner with them in the marketplace, the business world, the halls of education, and every other place. That's where we partner. And so, yes, I've been preaching on lay elders, that God would raise lay elders and deacons up and leaders in it. But, man, I want them to raise every one of us up for a role. You say, well, I'm retired. It doesn't apply to me. Oh, you know, you're just retreaded. You got neighbors, neighbors and and pickup ball players, and I don't know what else you do. Whatever it is, wherever you are, your walks, whatever you do as a retired person, God has given you influence in that area. You don't quit at this. <laughs> we finish the race. We run it to the end, brothers and sisters. There is no other option for us. Christ died for us and set us free. This is our calling, isn't it? Colossians chapter 3, when we start to think about how we're doing, if we were to grade ourselves, how am I doing at being part of the Great Commission? Is there room for improvement? Well, Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. He drops down to verse 23 after giving whatever you do. And he talks about wives, husbands, children, uh, slaves, masters. He goes through all that. Whatever you do, whatever your role is, whatever God has called you to do. Then he says in verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartily. as for the Lord rather than men. And look, let me tell you, I've, I can bear witness of this in my own life and watch other Christians who work this way. If you work for the Lord, your employer will be really happy. Because you're serving something so much greater than his bottom line. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24 says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of inheritance. You're not going to get the reward because you did that. You, you do it because you know you're going to be an inheritor and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. According to Romans 8, you're going to receive what he receives in some fashion. The Bible says we're joint heirs with him. That's why you work. You're already a, an inheritor. You may not see the riches and fame on here on earth, but what awaits you is a standing with God like Christ's standing in so many ways. He finishes it by saying, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Young people, let me just speak to you for just a moment. I was listening to some awful news this week. <laughs> And, and the news is just bad, right? I mean, there's just a bunch of fear mongers out there. After I got over what they were saying, I thought, Lord, who, who's going to be the next generation of journalists who won't compromise? Where's our next group of young people that come up and write with a biblical worldview on things? Who stand and speak on a biblical worldview of everything that the world seems to be caving on nowadays? Who's going to defend the person who pays dearly at, ch at, their, at their job for standing for what's right? Who's going to do that? Who's the next lawyers or attorneys? And I know we sometimes have a, a bad view of that, but man, we're going to have godly young men and godly women who will defend that person who gets fired because they said, you know, I... I can't support that. 
See, who's the next coming? See, I, I think we have to think through these things. Who, who's the next business owner that says, no, I love you and I appreciate you in so many ways, but I can't do that because it goes against what the Bible teaches me. I mean, who's going to do that? Where, where are these people coming from? Is it our church? Is it the young people from our homeschool, from our schools, from our, from, from our families, from, from our Bible school and seminary? Where are they coming from? Who will be the next? And, and, and I think this is so, so important because if you don't know theology, and I mean, I don't know how many times I've told people, say, people say, oh, that church just makes such a big deal about theology. About the study of God? Is that what you're talking about? They make too big a deal about who God is? See, it's who you think God is that dictates what you do. Do we understand that? So when we water down God and we make him like us, and we water down Jesus Christ, and he's just your best buddy, girlfriend type of person, you have no theology to strengthen you to stand for Jesus. Jesus is God, stepped out of heaven, took on flesh, became like us, perfect in every way so he could die for us. He's everything to us at Sunday school and Monday school. Where are you at on that? Are you still amazed at Jesus? I prayed this week, I said, Lord, Fire, my, fire me up more. Give me a deeper love for Jesus. Let me, let me get overwhelmed with him every day. I, I don't want to lose that with all the difficulties that are going. Life is hard, right? Church, business, finances, economy, everything is hard, right? Right? We know. But Lord, don't let me lose my passion for Jesus. It's the only thing that motivates me. It's the only thing that lasting motivation. It's the only thing that's going to matter when we cross that final line, brothers and sisters. Are you so passionate for Jesus? Take him with you tomorrow. Live for him. Speak of him. Don't compromise. Do be humble, be loving, but don't compromise. And watch him, watch him care for your soul. Watch him take care of you. I think men and women are driven by their deep love for Christ, his word, and for people. And I think when we're that way, we become tools in the hands of the master. Do you want to be that? I, I just always said, Lord, please, please, if you can help me get in a place, humbly help me get in a place where you'll reach for me to do something, I want to serve you. Those are scary words, right? Because he could send you to the mission field, heaven forbid. Or he might have you work in children's ministry or somewhere else. I mean, who knows what he'll do with you. Might have to greet somebody at the front door. Your seat will not be saved. I mean, heaven forbid. I mean, things are getting crazy, aren't they? You have a deep love for Jesus' word and his people. The master will use you. The master will use you. I don't, I don't use Scott. I'm a Stumbling, bumbling fool. Well, so was Moses. I mean, go down through them. Peter was a denier. A liar. He loves to take the broken and do glorious things with them. Do you have a deep, deep love for Jesus, his word, and his people? I know people have a deep love for his word, but they don't love his people. I, and, that's, and so they, they harm the church sometimes. Let me take you to one more verse here, then get to my ooh, last two points. Philippians chapter 2. Maybe God's calling you to volunteer more at church. Find something that's repeated over and over and a need for it and say, I'm going to go take care of that. Use your expertise in something to glorify God. 
desire to do the work of the ministry, not the position. Maybe you do need to become an elder or a deacon men, or maybe you need to become a Titus II type of woman who leads and teaches others, moms and women and children, how to know Christ. But here's the way you do it. Verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. I mean, bondservant is the guy who puts his ear in the door and drives the all through it because he's not just going to give it up in seven years. He's going for life. It's a Jewish term. It was a Hebrew term. And they would just drive a hole through it, and that said, that man belonged to that man for eternity. So Paul says that's what a bondservant does. And I know these are elder-type qualifications that are here, but I think everybody should strive for these. He's not quarrelsome. This person is bondservant, is not quarrelsome. But he's kind to all. Can you be kind to everyone? Those who oppose you. Those who hate you, can you be kind to them? Able to teach, able to take the truth that they have learned. Who Jesus is, what his word has to say, and present that in some intelligible way to somebody else. Maybe as simplistic as it may be, or maybe profound as it may be, you are able to say, here's what I believe. If we gave you three questions, and could you sit down right now and tell us, who is Jesus? Describe him. What did he accomplish on the cross? And how does he live in your life? Three questions. I just, I, those aren't even my notes. They're just coming off my head here. Three questions. Can you tell somebody that? Notice that this bondservant, this lifetime servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, he or she is patient when wronged. They're gentle when they correct people who are in opposition to them. It's not a fight. You don't have to save them. God's going to save them. You don't have to out-argue them, out-yell them, out-throw things. God's going to save them. Can you teach the gospel to them? Can you lead them to truth? Can you, can you understand that there is a gentle correction um, even when you're being in, op, op, uh, in opposition towards because notice, if perhaps, now notice, look at the theology here. If perhaps God may grant them repentance. Your best argument on your own is not going to bring people to repentance. God is. But your best argument needs to be biblical. <laughs> and it needs to be loving and gentle and truthful. That's what he's trying to teach us here. What about someone who doesn't know Jesus? How glorious it is as we watch 12 get baptized just here a couple Sunday nights ago and, and, and here repented of their sins. They're led to the knowledge of truth. And notice in verse 26, this is amazing. They've come, they've come to their senses, right? People who are lost are out of their minds is what the Bible is saying. When you don't have Jesus, you're out of mind. Why? Because everything you think you have is for this life. You're not living for anything but this life. You're out of your mind. Judgment's coming. If I told you there was a firestorm coming like happened in Maui and you said, ah, I don't care. You're out of your mind. When we preach the gospel, it shows people whether they're out of their minds if you don't follow Christ. And God does that. He brings that in. And notice they escape the snare of the devil. The devil's waiting to take all these people to hell with him. That's his goal. And here's the reality, having been held captive by him. That's what we're up against. We're up against a spiritual being who holds people captive. But Jesus says, preach the truth and the truth will set them free. That's what we do. Number two, the church that does not labor in vain because it trusts in the Lord. You might be saying here, Scott, life's difficult. You don't understand my circumstances. It's hard in this world. It's hard to fight in this world. It's difficult. I've made so many mistakes. Uh, whatever your reasons are, you may be listening to this and saying, I don't know if I can be immovable, steadfast, always, always, that great adverb, always abounding in the Lord. Things just seem impossible to me. 
You probably heard people say this to you, the saying, we talked about this in staff not too long ago, that God will not give you more than you can handle. Have you ever heard that? You think that's true? Well, I think they get it from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, there where Paul, trying to encourage um, this church, we've been through this passage, that, that, the, that there's no temptation that's overtaken you that such is common to man, right? And he'll always provide a way out. And I think that's where they go. We have to be careful with that. Um, James says that God doesn't tempt. But people are led away by their own lust. It gives conception. They look at something and conception happens and then it gives birth to sin, which gives birth to death. We find that trail through James 1.13 and following. But let me ask you the question again. Is that statement true that God will not give you more than you can handle? Absolutely not. That is a false statement. You go, uh-oh. I said yes, and the person heard me, in front of me heard it. God will give you so much more than you can handle. I know some of you are already sitting back. I think I know where he's going with this because I'm experiencing it. I'm way in over my head. I don't know how to bear up the sorrow that's in my heart. I don't know how to get out of the situations that I've been in. See, I, I think God gives us constantly more than we can bear, more than we can handle so that we'll trust him. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul confessed this. I think we should confess this. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 8. He's talked about the comforter of God, how he comforts us in our trials and our suffering. But verse 8, he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Listen, church, we want you to know something, is what Paul's saying. Look at this. Here's the answer to, your question, to that question. Our, of our afflictions which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively, Beyond our strength, so that we despaired even for life. <laughs> if I asked you to raise your hand, how many of you would say, I've been there? I think I'm there like every other week. <laughs> Lord, I don't know if I can take this. I, I don't know if I can bear this. I mean, here, he, they've been... Shipwreck, beat, snake bit. I mean, you name it, this guy goes through everything, let alone just the constant hatred of him, the constant following him, the constantly bringing up accusations against him, constantly coming after the Apostle Paul. And indeed, verse 9, he said, we have the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. Now, here's the answer, but in God who raises the dead. I mean, think about that for just a moment. You say, my problems are so difficult. Can you at least go back to the fact that God raises the dead and then put your problem in comparison to that? That's quite a thought, isn't it? So Paul, on his way out of this despair, out of this sentence of death, what he turns to is God raises the dead, and who's probably on the top of that list? Jesus. And if he raised Jesus... That means he forgave our sins, he beat sin, Satan, and death, and he will raise me someday, no matter what I'm going through in this life. You think Paul may have thought about that as he had his neck in the guillotine when Nero was about ready to take his head off at the end of 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 2? I mean, 2 Timothy, his last letter. Kill me. God raises the dead. He knew that. He put his faith in that. And then look at verse 12, 10. For who delivers us from such great peril of death, and will deliver us he whom we have set our hope. And anytime I'm struggling, and I have my share of struggles, I'll go, Scott, you lost your hope. Your hope is your hope is in something else that didn't come out the way you want it to be, and so now you're struggling. And you go back and you say, Lord, I, I need your forgiveness. I put my hope in this or that or this person or that one or whatever it may have been. And Lord, my hope was not in you. Will you forgive me? 
and we cause today my hope to be in you. See the great difference? You say, well, Scott, where do we see this in the scriptures? Well, how about Lazarus? <laughs> I mean, God gives Lazarus a job. Die. And I think what's worse about it is he raised him from the dead. He had to go do it all again. His sisters are going, Jesus, if you've only been here. Way beyond, way beyond their handling of this. This was something so difficult. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Uh, yeah, mm, we're not bowing down to your, your idols. And you're going to throw us in the furnace. God may or may not deliver us, but we're not bowing down. Our hope's in God. I mean, we find this all the time, all through the scriptures. I, I love the feeding of the 5,000. <laughs> They're all out there in the middle of nowhere. Jesus says, well, hey, we're way out here. Why don't you give them something to eat? <laughs> what? 5,000 men, 20,000 plus people. We got a couple of fish and a little bit of bread. I mean, it's hopeless. They're way over their head for that. How about Mary Magdalene, a demon-possessed woman who showers the Lord with Worship. I mean, how about her? How does she make it in that ancient Jewish Hebrew hating of women, and particularly women like that? How does she make it? Read of King Hezekiah recently in my own devotions. Man, just a mess. The Syrians are outside the gate, hundreds of thousands of men. There's no way out. They're all going to die. He throws his face on the ground before God. And he prays one of the greatest prayers ever recorded. And God delivers him. See, we have illustration after illustration. Hannah, I just, he pops into my mind. Hannah, I mean, when you read 1 Samuel, this is such a broken woman who cannot solve her barrenness. She puts her hope in God. I mean, it's just one after another after another. Look with me at 1 Peter, this passage that Pastor Jerry read this morning. We looked at this passage, the first four verses last week when we were talking about elders and the plurality of them and how they serve among the, the flock and not done by compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God. We, we, we looked at this passage as just a real great encouragement and then maybe there's not much reward in doing that in this earth but there's this great reward, unfading crown of glory that waits for those who serve as elders in verse 4. But then he turns to young men, and that's interesting. Many people have asked me, why does he take on young men? Verse 5, likewise be subject to your elders. Why does he single them out? Um, Because when we're young, we we have a lot of trust in our own self. And so he he reminds them, look, I know you got things figured out and you're, you know, 20-something, but (laughs) submit to your elders. I mean, that's what he does. He, he's trying to remind them that there's a process that God brings them up under. And he says, all of you. Then he turns to everybody. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So there's, there's what happens when you're in over your head. Are you going to solo bootstrap to? Solo bootstrap this yourself? Okay, the last solo. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pull myself up. I'm going to work hard. I'm going I'm to get this done. Or do you fall on your face before God? And you go, God, the Syrians are outside the gate. And I can't even count how many are there. Will you help me? See, there's the difference. It's the difference between those who are proud and those who humble themselves. Verse 6, therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Not at your time, but at his time. Because God's always perfect in his timing. We don't always think that, do we? God, why haven't you answered that prayer? Why did you let this happen? We have all these lists of things, and yet we have to come back that God is holy. He is absent of evil. Everything he does is perfect in its timing. That's hard for us to swallow sometimes, isn't it? And he'll exalt you. What's your job? Humble yourself. What's his job? Exalt you. He'll do that. So what's our job? Verse 7, cast all your anxieties on him. You struggle from depression? Struggle from difficulties that may enter in your life in different ways. Maybe you don't sleep really well at night because you worry about things. Some of us struggle with that, right? We wake up in the middle of the night and, oh, Lord, so many things on my mind. Cast, the word is to throw them 
on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. This comes back to the spirituality of, of the, the spirit within us. See, there's a spirit that brings us this sober-mindedness. It's a, it's a fruit of the spirit in a way. And then and because then we're trusting the Lord and we've, we've relied on him, the spirit now has, has room to work within our lives and it causes us to be alert. Instead of being so full of anxiety and pride, you become alert. And that's good because the Bible says your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what do I do with him? He's, he's this created being. He's, he's very, very powerful. Well, he says resist him in your faith. Again, this whole steadfastness in your faith. What's your faith? What's it built on? Is it built on Christ alone or you alone? What's it built on? And no, look, I, I think when we go through things, we think we suffer alone. But look at this. He says, knowing that your experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You're not alone. In fact, as Christians, we suffer many of the same things. Verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, listen to this beautiful benediction. The God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. What a statement. My last thought here just quickly is what are we building on? Number three, build on the rock or sand. That will determine whether you abound in the work of the Lord. Look with me at Matthew chapter 7. And we'll close with this just real quickly. I love this text. This is at the end of the greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher ever. It's the Sermon on the Mount. It's the last of his illustrations. Sermon on the Mount is worth reading over and over and over to find comfort in it. Jesus there preached to his followers great truth that still lasts to this day. See, we don't want to toil in vain, right? I, I know if you're a believer in here, you don't want to toil in vain. And we're trying to love Christ and we're trying to love his word and we're trying to love people. But there's plenty of people who say they don't. And you notice that he starts this last section with them. He talks about good trees and bad trees and bad fruit and good fruit. And then verse 20, he comes in and says this. This is Jesus speaking. So then you will know them by their fruits. And it's inevitable that what is inside will come out. The tree cannot grow something that it doesn't have the seed to, in it to do. The apple tree can't all of a sudden grow bananas. <laughs> a bad fruit can't produce good fruit. And, and, and so he wants to make sure he is recognizing how you can see the difference. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. All kinds of people that call on God for help. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Well, what's the will of the Father? Believe in my Son alone. That's the will of the Father. Believe in my Son. Put your faith in him. Trust his word. Love one another. And they'll know you're my disciples. That's the will of God. Verse 22, many will say on that day, the Lord, Lord, we did not... Did we, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? All these wild, fascinating, outward things that make people awe and draw crowds in and buy jets and all that other stuff that comes with it. Did we not do all that stuff? Now I'll tell you, Satan's more active than you think. He, he loves religion without Christ. He loves it. It's a great deceiver. And he marks that here. Verse 23, And then when I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Not you who practice the will of God, but you who practice lawlessness. See, he says lawlessness is all this false prophecy and false stuff that they get involved in that, that looks religious and looks good. He says that's lawlessness. That's not of me. And then he closes with this, this Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine, act on them, may be compared to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew, slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And when Jesus finished these words, the crowd were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who having authority and not as the scribes. In closing, I love this story because the houses look the same. They look the same. It's the same storm that hits them too. You notice he just repeats exactly the same. Rain, winds, flood, they're all hitting right at the exact same time. They're hitting that. And there's one that stays up and there's one that has a great fall. And so I think this is the difference between those who are bounding in the Lord and those who are playing the religious game. If you're playing the religious game, you will not survive judgment. The judgment of the Lord will come because he knows what your house is built on. And it's either built on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ in him alone or it's built on your own goodness. Which the Bible says is just filthy rags. You want to bound in the Lord? It starts with where you build your foundation. Can you answer those three questions? Can you tell somebody else clearly who Jesus is and what he accomplished for you? Can you, can you tell somebody, if you were asked as you walked out this door, could you tell them that? See, it starts there. That's where my foundation is built. Father, thank you for this time in the Word. This verse has just plowed me, Lord. I want to be steadfast. I want to be abounding. I always want to be uh, abounding in the work of the Lord. I, I don't want to be pushed around. I want to be immovable for you, humbly immovable for you, Lord, so that all is not done in vain, Lord, but for your glory. And so, Lord, I think of our church here. It's so diverse and, and, and so large, and there's so many giftedness, and so much here, Lord. If, if we could all just humbly submit to you and surrender, oh, what would you do with a church like this? Who would be reached? How many lost would you save? Lord, we, we need your help to do that, Lord. We are selfish creatures by nature. We defend and protect our own honor all the time. Lord, help us die to self and live for you and see what you do with that. In Jesus' name, amen.